Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on Tap, we have The French Connection, starring Gene Hackman, Fernando Ray, and Roy Scheider. Screenplay by Ernest Tidyman, based on the book by Robin Moore, and directed by William Friedkin. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to start a new film review cast. This one we're stating all around the films of one Mr. William Friedkin, who really kind of rose to popularity and prominence in the late late to mid-70s with some pretty big films like The French Connection, The Exorcist, etc. So we're going to kind of spend a couple weeks talking about him as a filmmaker, but then really focusing in on these films. And we started with the doozy today, The French Connection from 1971. Uh, Yeah, this was a film kind of right in our wheelhouse. We've talked routinely on this podcast about being big fans of this era, this kind of 67 to 74 era of filmmaking. There's an aesthetic to the film that this period certainly has, but the other big part of this is what the protagonist turns into during this period. Mm -hmm. You know, we can explain it in a superhero way with this is the Superman hero of golden era Hollywood versus Batman. Mm -hmm. So Superman, the big flying flag Mm-hmm. Truth, justice, in the American way. Yeah. I'm only going to punch you enough so that the cops can subdue you and put you into jail where mm-hmm. you get Batman, and it's, I'm in a cave, forces of the night, my sidekick's <laughs> a little dude in hot pants, yeah. and all of the... Vigilante. Latent and obvious obfuscation of the traditional heroic norms that have out, gone out the window. Mm-hmm. And what would we say, 65 to 73, four-ish? Mm-hmm. So 71, we're right in smack dab in the middle of Mm -hmm. that period. Yeah, film totally changing how it was presented to us. But yeah, we got some great stuff to talk about. I'm really excited to talk about some of the sequences, especially our main character in this film. Uh, But let's start like we usually do with our flight question. So being that our film today, The French Connection, and our protagonist, dare we call him our protagonist of the film, uh, Popeye, Jimmy Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, is what you could probably call an anti-hero, being that he does work for the forces of good, but the way he goes about his job and the way he treats most people is far from good. So to me, an anti-hero is it's someone who goes about with They have good intentions, but they're kind of in it for themselves. They're kind of in it for, you know, you know, not maybe the best of reasons. It's a selfish gains, so to speak. Gene Hackman in this film's going to be an Academy Award winner. Mm -hmm. Best actor, right? Yes. Brought that up during the feature. Mm -hmm. He's going to win for this and best supporting for Unforgiven. Mm -hmm. Um, Per acclaim. Mm Mm-hmm. This is probably the most acclaimed of the anti-heroes. Now, there's some that are going to be spoken about maybe in a more reverent way, Mm -hmm. but 
per recognition from the hierarchy or the brass in Hollywood, I think this is probably the highest honor that the anti-hero will achieve. Definitely. Yeah, fair. Yeah. So before we get into our list, let's go ahead and cheers. We're having some more of the old Forrester statesman. So yeah, we're kind of sticking with the old Forrester for this cask here. So we're going to raise him to the anti-hero, but before we get too far, mm-hmm. I also want to raise him to Rye Nation. Yeah. Had a huge day on Thursday, you told me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, thank you to all the listeners, you know, being that you're all kind of stuck at, at, at home or those that are still having to work, you know, thank you for all of that. But we hope you're getting some enjoyment um, by way of Rice Smile during this, all of this. Yeah. For all of you that are doing your part, we're trying to do our part to help you along with that a little bit too. So here's to Popeye and here's to all of you other anti-heroes in Rye Nation. Cheers to that. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Mm. We got to be careful. This might turn into the Old Forester podcast. The Old Forester? Yeah. yeah you never know. Because there's another bottle coming before not too long too that I just got this week. So Excellent. So let's talk about our favorite film anti-heroes. Why don't you go first, Matt, with your... Top three, you want me yeah. to go three, two, one? Yeah. Checking in at number three for me was Mr. Dustin Hoffman as Ratso Rizzo. Mm-hmm. I hope someday we do that movie. Oh, I can't wait. Um, This street urchin that sort of takes John Voight under his wing and... <laughs> street teach, urchin, that's right? a good description. Teaches him the ways of the street and male prostitution. Mm-hmm. But wrapped inside of that is a terrific buddy movie. Mm-hmm. With, in my opinion, one of the saddest films, saddest endings of film ever. It sure is. Mm -hmm. Dustin Hoffman is a terrific actor, and it's one of his better performances ever, and I just love that character. That's the other thing about this time period that we like. The actors and actresses that emerged from this period is legendary. Yeah. Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, John Voight, Gene Hackman just so many great uh, actors, you know, Ellen Burstyn mm-hmm. and, um, oh God, what's her name? And, uh, Vanessa Redgrave making films with John Cassavetes. Just some brilliant actors coming out of this. Al Pacino. I was going to say Pacino. Mm-hmm. Even James Caan to a certain extent sure. too. John Cazale. Oh God. Mm-hmm. Meryl Streep. Keep going, man. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, that's great. Okay, my number three, I'm actually going to go... We talked about this a couple weeks ago and this is snake Pliskin from escape from new york yeah. won't go into too much detail because we co- totally broke that down in that episode but just from his goals and he he could give two shits about the war that's happening and the president that's uh, captive but he goes about it anyway to save his own skin like that's like the definition of anti-hero <laughs> i'd say so yeah so yeah he's my number three i won't go too much into that one the parting shot at the end of the movie that knows mm. he can prevent it and just doesn't give a So rip. great, yes. It is so great. Yeah. Number two. Number two for me, again, another Dost- Dustin Hoffman character. Mm. Uh, this one from The Graduate. Mm. It's Ben Braddock. Mm-hmm. I think the reason that I like him in three and two or twice on the list then is he just doesn't look like the surfboard that Hollywood continually mm. cast in the protagonist role. Yeah, it's a far cry from Montgomery Clift and like Burt Lancaster. But not so far that he's become Woody Allen, because mm-hmm. that's also too off-putting to be believable. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting balance. Yeah, so they found a, a nice range with him. And as, I don't want to say nondescript, because he certainly has a, a look and a feel to him, but he really is kind of the everyman that when you get to know him is a little bit compromised. And look, that movie, The Graduate, mm-hmm. um, to sort of go through 
the romantic arcs that he does in that movie and still come out <clears throat> kind of ahead at the end. Yeah. Not really sure what's coming next, but I guess a version of ahead, which is, I think, a rite of passage that most people mm-hmm. go through in their life. Like, now that I'm married, mm-hmm. what's next? Exactly. So, and the way he got there was through an affair. That's great. And you can't but help pull for him. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. He's kind of likable. He's kind of doofy, but not slapsticky. Sure. Um, it's just a really nice sort of portrayal. Even and Razzo Rizzo, to a certain extent, has a little bit of a comedic feel to that character as well, just because it's so hard to watch and so awkward. Mm-hmm. You kind of can't but help laugh at how pathetic. Mm-hmm. But Braddock is an entirely different kind of unique. Definitely. And um, not a ladies' man at all, but somehow seems to pull it off. I should talk about a one-two punch. I think Graduate 67. I think Midnight Cowboys 69. Yeah. Boom, boom. When's the little big man? That's in there, not... 70? (laughs) (laughs) What a a run. run. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Number two for me, I'm going um, to the 80s again. Action. I'm actually going John Rambo, but from First Blood. So in First Blood, Rambo comes back as this, you know... Vietnam veteran and he's just trying to reacclimate into society and just the town that he picks to go through they turn him into the anti-hero oh yeah so it essentially becomes me versus them type of mentality and I love that there's one line in the film that I've always loved and it's when he's kind of gotten one up on the the police force there by led by Brian Dennehy and he says don't push it don't push it or I'll give you a war you wouldn't believe. And boy, does he bring it to them in that little town there. But it's hard to call him a hero in that film just because he's really just trying to survive at that point and trying to make it out of there because no one understands him. All of the entries in that Rambo series are good for me. Mm -hmm. You know, we can talk about, well, Rocky five was a misstep. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a misstep in the new Rambo. And I even like the new one that just came out Mm -hmm. just this last fall or Mm -hmm. last winter, whenever it was. I really like that fourth one. When he's in Cambodia. But the bodies hit the floor. <laughs> Literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my... um, And in the book, too. I've, re- I've read the book as well, First Blood. And it, he's portrayed the same way. This kind of... I'm just kind of in it... Or I got in it to survive mentality. So, yeah, that's my number two. Number one. Fast Eddie Felsen. Mm. That movie, for me, is in the annals of all time. Fibers. Which movie, Matt? Oh, the hustler. Yeah. <laughs> it's a that's I might even say top three depending on the day. I love that film. He's such a bastard. His whole singular purpose is to go down as the greatest pool shark of all time, which mostly is unknown to just about everyone. Mm-hmm. No one really cares. Except him. Mm-hmm. And the waste that he lays on the people that are involved with him to get there is monumental to say the least. Mm -hmm. Piper Laurie being the victim that kind of takes it the worst in that movie. And again, she, I think is important in that film because she really does elevate or enhance his character. Mm -hmm. I've talked about it a lot and we're going to cover this movie someday. And it's the picnic scene between the two of them when they're both sort of laid bare and exposed in a vulnerable state, but not sexually, like spiritually or emotionally. And they're both revealing their innermost desires and goals. And Piper Laurie just wants him to admit that he's ready to rock and roll with her, like Mm -hmm. that she's going to be his, the one. Mm -hmm. 
and she just sells it in such a way and he takes it yeah and somehow makes it as much as that's about him makes it even more about him because it's being said by him mm -hmm. about him like at least she's saying i love you eddie and if you ever say the words i'll never take you will never take them back something along those lines mm -hmm. oh no i love you eddie and if you ever tell me the same i'll never let you take them back and it turns into you know sarah someday you're going to write a great book about me mm -hmm. <sighs> it's one of my favorite moments in film mm -hmm. and it's because he's just such a bastard but mm -hmm. i totally pull for him yeah and I'm glad that he has the showdown with Jackie Gleason in the end and wins by losing or loses by winning. Yeah. That's just a masterful role. It's one of my favorite, favorite roles in film. Mm -hmm. It's my, obviously my favorite. This wasn't even a hard one for me. Yeah. It's my favorite anti-hero. Nice. Anti-hero role ever. Fast Eddie Felsen. Excellent. Can I ask you a question before you do my number, number one? one? Mm -hmm. Would you consider Naaman in Whiplash an anti-hero. Mm. There's a bit <clears throat> of a Felsen element to him. A little bit. Mm -hmm. Striving for greatness. Kicks that girl to the curb. Mm -hmm. uh, almost. Maybe not quite. Then is um, J.K. Simmons, is he, is he an anti-protagonist? Is he an anti-antagonist? Anti-antagonist, possibly. Kind because, of, huh? He's kind of like the Thanos a little bit. Like, so do you, wow, that's what I was just going to say, because he's Thanos. Look at you. The way they see what they're doing is good, but the way we visualize it on screen is pure evil, in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that in both of them. Exactly. The anti-hero mm -hmm. and the pro-antagonist. Is that what it would be? Yeah, it's, that's a rice smile trademark now, the anti-antagonist. Yeah. Excellent. My number one, I'm going back to 1976 for this one. I'm actually going to go Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. I had a revisiting with this character, especially around the time that Joker came out, and you could maybe even call Arthur Fleck a bit of an anti-hero as well in that film. Sure. But revisiting that film, I kind of saw, you know, the journey that he goes through and his transformation, the, this very sociopathic tendencies to really want to rid New York, like another seedy, gross New York in that film, yeah. of of its evil and its vile. But the way he goes about it is just so backwards and out of control and, and just not appropriate that he comes across as an anti-hero. I mean, they write articles about him at the end of that film that he like saved the day and saved you know the um, these people from these Johns there in, the, in that in that building. But the scene that always sticks out to me is when he takes Civil, Civil Shepherd to the porno movie. Yep, I'm like, man, that's not how you romance Civil Shepherd. You need to wine and dine her and, and treat her right. He takes her to the porno theater and she's just instantly turned off as people would be, but. That's a that's a disconnect that he has with society and with within his his overall goals. So I think the gal that would be opposite him in another film that's <clears throat> the kind of gal that you would take to that sort of movie is Kathy Moriarty. Mm -hmm. He's just got the wrong gal from the wrong movie. Yeah, the wrong Scorsese movie needs to be Raging Bull. Mm -hmm. But uh, I agree, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know better, does he? No, nope. he, he thinks, thinks that's an okay. He's like, this is pretty good. People like this kind of movie. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's my list. But yeah, they're 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 fun characters, and I, and they're they're fun characters to write too. Oh. Like just kind of you know someone that's just so bad, but they're good at the same time. Yeah. But let's get right to it, and it's happy hour time. 
One more cheers before cheers. we could dive right in and our review breakdown of the French Connection. What's he talking about? I've got a man in Poughkeepsie who wants to talk to you. You ever been in Poughkeepsie? Huh? Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? Hey, man. Come on, give me a break. Hey, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me hear you say it. Come on. Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? You've been in Poughkeepsie, haven't you? I want to hear it. Come on. Yes, yes. You've been there, right? Yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes, and picked your feet, didn't you? That's it. Yes. All right. You put a shield on my partner. You know what that means? God damn it. All went wrong, I gotta listen to him gripe about his bowling scores. Now, I'm gonna bust your ass for those three bags, and I'm gonna nail you for picking your finger for Pepsi. One of the things I've always loved about the opening of this film is <clears throat> you're treated to the 20th Century Fox logo, which has always been one of my favorites in cinema. And as it goes from black and white to color, there's like seven to eight seconds of just silence. And then you're bombarded by oh. the opening titles and that music that I played before the flight question. And within about 20 seconds, they're over, and we're right off to the races with our film in Marseille, France, as we're kind of following this guy who's, the whole film is kind of tailing. It's like following people, stalking people. Mm -hmm. And we get this first kind of bit of it with um, this character, and he's kind of going about his business, but he's following kind of these players that are going to come up here in the duration of the film. And he's done in by the assassin element of the film on uh Nicolia, I, I believe his name is. And we're kind of just setting the tone with the type of people we're dealing with, but the the type of framework that the film's going to work with, which is, you know, how far are you willing to follow someone before they find out who you are? Are you going to blow your cover? Stark and harsh is the way that music rolls out in the beginning. Short and sweet, it's over. Mm -hmm. It's effective, or I guess it, it serves its purpose, and it's effective, but I don't know how pleasant it is. Mm -hmm. And isn't that mostly the theme for the entire story? Yeah, I don't think the whole film experience watching this is supposed to be pleasant. Right. The music is really harsh. It's kind of creepy at times, especially at the end, which I want to talk about. But even just kind of the look, it's everything's just so raw looking and decrepit and just kind of all over the place. Well, you said this movie's not <clears throat> afraid. During the viewing, you said this. The movie's not afraid to let everybody know that this is not Cary Grant's Hollywood. Mm. This is a harsher, mm -hmm. more surreal in the fact that it's so honest mm -hmm. in its depiction of the surroundings. Mm -hmm. This is not lipstick on Marilyn Monroe. This is really shoddy, shoddy lipstick, like Phyllis Dietrichson lipstick in double indemnity on the pig kind of not yeah. working lipstick. Yeah. And I love it because it doesn't shy away from it. Like you there, how many scenes in the film when you brought it up, I paid a lot of attention going forward. Look at that trash, over trash there. everywhere. Look at that bum over there. Like, yeah, it shows how awful a place New York city is. And even the moments in that movie mm -hmm. that we see something that's more high society or refined still come across as a little grimy. And under a layer of heavy smoke mm -hmm. and grim, grimy film seediness, the That's, whole thing. So like that scene, can, um, just real quick. Yeah. The scene when Doyle is outside that fine restaurant mm -hmm. eating that slice of pizza and drinking that terrible coffee that he can't even finish because it's so bad. So he dumps it out mm -hmm. and it's just freezing. The movie made me cold yeah. to watch it. Yeah. It's cold. And then you're watching him through the window in that fine dining restaurant where Charnier, Charnier mm -hmm. is 
eating whatever they're eating, and you see that bit where they're cutting the meat. Yeah, it's gross. It is. And I like I like a nice medium rare steak yeah. myself. Mm-hmm. Even that looks awful. Mm-hmm. About the mm-hmm. most comfortable and I think warm and welcoming moment in the movie is what we're going to get to here in just a minute, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And that's when Doyle takes um, his partner, uh, Gross, oh, Cloudy, Clou- yeah, mm-hmm. out for the drink, Scheider mm-hmm. out for the drink. Mm-hmm. That's about the warmest and friendliest and comfortable the entire film is. And think about where that's taking place. Really seedy club where it's filled with ne'er-do-wells and money being exchanged between hands at tables with crooked smiles and mm-hmm. clandestine yuck. Yeah. And that's the warmest the whole film is. Yeah, literally. And I love that because mm-hmm. the movie does a really good job of setting that tone and never getting out of it. That's why I love Hollywood around this time. They weren't unaf- uh, afraid to really kind of show how things really look. Right. Really kind of take down those veils of a set design film on location. I think that's why you get a lot of films looking this way. And then it's just all reflected. I, I, I feel like these films try to be more honest with how people felt during the times, you know, whether it's civil rights movement or Vietnam or just Kent state massacres, whatever's going on in the United States at that time, some terrible things is reflected in the film. So film, we just couldn't like be phony at that point. Film brings forth this veil of honesty with this is the real world. This is what things really look like. This is how people really act. Maybe I'm getting ahead of this, the show today, and I know you're probably going to get to this, but I'm setting you up to do it now anyway. Okay. The fact that there's no dolly track laid and the whole camera mm-hmm. action is done handheld next to the players, mm-hmm. it gives you a feeling of being right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that for a minute and a little bit about sure. uh, Friedkin and how we got there, or do you want to save yeah, that for well, later? Yeah, let's do it now. So okay. Friedkin was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and actually cut his teeth in broadcasting at WGN. Really? He, That's where? Mm-hmm. And wow. so he kind of was like, you know, you know, set bitch and kind of had to do like all those type of jobs as you work your way up. But he kind of got wind of, you know, getting into stuff with uh, documentaries. And so he actually ended up making this documentary. And I mean, you could probably find it somewhere. It's called The People versus Paul Crump. And it was this man who was on death row who he made this documentary because he claimed that he was innocent and he was like really close to being executed. So it was something he was very passionate about and that raw type that documentary brings you and it never got aired on Chicago airwaves. It was deemed too risky uh, of a film to, there would just be like chaos if he had, but they entered it into some film festivals and it actually won like top prize. So he caught, caught a niche for uh, making these in documentaries, he even made uh, some on like some Chicago bears football players and found his way to Los Angeles. He was actually like a low level representative of this documentary by the William Morris uh, talent agency. And as he worked his kind of way up is how he kind of found his way to, to this film. Now this is going to be totally crazy. So um, he actually met this producer in Paramount's gym, uh, Philip D'Antoni, and they just kind of shot the shit. And that's how they ended up kind of talking. Hey, we might, you brought that like documentary style. Do you want to bring that to this film that we're trying to get made the French connection? So he did. And Friedkin was kind of shacked up at that point with Howard Hawks's daughter. 
Oh, wow. Uh, Howard Hawks, the legendary uh, director. So he says, what do you think of my films? Uh, he's talking to Howard Hawks at this point. He's like, I think they're kind of lousy, and you can't really find a lot to remember of his early work pre this film. But he says, he says, if you're going to make a film, make, make a good chase film, but do it better than anyone's ever done it before. Mm. So that kind of lit the fire under him. But you can tell watching this film that he brings that documentary sense sentimentality to that with the focal zoom lenses, the handheld camera, everything's either in a distance and we're pulling back from it. Uh, it's, it's real shaky, but not in like a nauseating kind of born, born trilogy kind of way. It's, it's, it's handled properly. And I think he captures all that, that real sense of New York through that lens. The action around the handheld camera at location is minimal enough to where the bobbing and the weaving that might occur just through the natural movement as you're carrying it Mm -hmm. is limited because you can mostly focus on the image that is centered in the camera. Mm -hmm. Now, where that starts to become, I think, troublesome for me, especially in handheld movies, is when there's a lot of other action on the periphery of the center because then it's hard to center your focus on something and you just get sort of a dancing effect with visual opulence and excess. So this movie is slow enough with its action around the main characters that I don't think it's distracting, but it creates a familiarity of being right there in the middle of it with them, kind of like you are with a documentary. Mm -hmm. Essentially, this movie could be called Popeye Doyle or Popeye. Yeah since the name would already be taken by the character, obviously not, or maybe Doyle. Mm -hmm. And I think that almost would be as appropriate, if not more appropriate than the title, The French Connection, because it really is a character study of this particular man. Well, let's talk about him. Portrayed by Gene Hackman here, he had prior to this, he had done a few films, most notably Bonnie and Clyde, who was in that film. But uh, we kind of get the first sequence of him and Roy Scheider, who plays Cloudy, here and they're selling hot dogs and he's playing Santa Claus. And I told you this was a real thing. So this is based on real New York uh, narcotics detectives, uh, Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso. And this was something they usually did. And I told you that, that their call sign was when he started singing Jingle Bells was go in and make the sting. Yep. And that's what happens in the film. And they get on this chase to that sound clip that I just played. Are you picking your feet in Poughkeepsie? But we get a lot from Popeye's character. He's a real intense individual he kind of comes in and commands the attention of of the viewer yeah and the his methods are maybe questionable (laughs) questionable at least but he does get results which is interesting to say as well gene hackman had a hard time playing this character because of the way he does push everyone around and he didn't get along with the real eddie egan who plays like their like boss their boss in the film but could have been Paul Newman, Jackie Gleason, or Peter Boyle. But man, Hackman owns this role, and like anytime he's on there, like you just kind of gravitate towards him. And yeah, he he just plays it so well. But a character that you know, other than like a few sprinklings throughout the late '60s, we haven't really seen a character done like this before. Like someone who's good natured, has good intentions. I'm going to do the thing for the pol- the police department of New York, but man, I'm going to be a bastard the whole time I'm doing it and hard drinking and ass tailing as well. <laughs> yeah. I think that you said it in the middle of that mm-hmm. little bit you just did there. He's effective, but it's pretty raw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe raw is an understatement, but the whole film is like that. A lot of the chasing in the movie when they're after, <clears throat> 
the drug lords and the, the cartel that's, I'm assuming, peddling heroin, mm-hmm. is scored by a tuba. Yeah. I wouldn't say a tuba is the most pleasing musical instrument, mm-hmm. but it's really effective in that it grounds it and creates a baseline, almost like a heartbeat to the film. Mm-hmm. So effective, but a little rough. Sure. And that a little is way understated, rough and effective. And that's the whole film. Like we talked about from the opening credits and the music that goes with it mm-hmm. to what you just said, ass tailing. We're going to find his, uh, <laughs> yeah, his pursuit, his ability to pursue, uh, the fair sex is an interesting conundrum unto itself in this movie. Um, raw yeah. and effective. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing though about it is in New York at that time, mm-hmm. it looks like it's completely necessary to be done that way. Sure. There's not a whole lot of, I'm sorry in that New York. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of F you, and that's just going to have to sort of serve as a verb, a pronoun, an adjective, and a condolence. Mm-hmm. Strange, huh? Yeah, so let's set up the the chase here. So they go to this this bar, this Paul's Monterey Inn, and uh, they're, um, they catch wind on on this guy. This is uh, Sal Boca, and he's just passing around money like it's nobody's business. And the, the kind of crowd that he's with are people that they've kind of been had their eye on, so him and Cloudy kind of say, let's tell him, let's kind of see where this leads. And it leads them to this this restaurant that he owns, which is far from the glamour of that that bar. And it's the beginning operations of this drug peddling through New York City. Our friend's name is Boca, Salvatore Boca, B-O-C-A. They call him Sal. He's a sweetheart. He was picked up on suspicion of armed robbery. Now get this. Three years ago, he tries to hold up Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue in broad daylight. He could have got two and a half to five, but Tiffany's wouldn't prosecute. Also, downtown, they're pretty sure he pulled off a contract on a guy named DeMarco. What about his old lady? Her name's Angie. She's a fast filly. She drew a suspended for shoplifting a year ago. She's only a kid. 19, according to the marriage license. Hmm, 19 going on 50. So they find this <clears throat> this kind of little kind of just sandwich shop that sells candy and magazines and whatever. And their first kind of way of business, we got to put a tap on this. We got to find out what's what's being said in this restaurant to kind of get some type of a lead. But then even that kind of goes nowhere, too. And then we get that next great sequence of him just kind of coming into this bar and just totally raising hell. All right, Popeye's here. Get your hands on your heads. Get off the bar and get on the wall. Come on, move. Move. Come on, sweetheart, move. Come on, move. Face the window. Move. Face the ball. Turn around there. Turn around. Move. Come on. Move. Hands out of your pockets. Turn around. Turn around. Come on, you heart. Come on. Turn around, man. Come on, turn around. Get on the wall. Get on the wall. I love the way he comes in there and he just has total command of the scene. Drops the hammer. Drops the hammer and he finds all these drugs underneath the the underneath the bar and gets them out of their pockets. And it almost seems like he comes here frequently, like every couple months to kind of do this and kind of shake things up a bit. But it's almost that notion of like, you got to let the little fish go so you can catch the big fish later. And oh, so, well said, yeah. yeah. And so he comes in, he kind of catches wind of this guy and they have to pay a nickel to go into the bathroom. And he's rough with him outs- outside of the bathroom. But when he gets in, they're kind of like, all right, kind of shoot it to me straight. Like who's, who's moving stuff here in New York? We got nothing. And it's kind of dried up right now, but that means something big's coming in. And so they're kind of like on each other's terms. Like this is like his inside informant, which 
you know, if you're working this narcotics in this CD New York and you have to be a little CD yourself, you, I totally buy like what he has to do through his methods. Let's go back two steps so I can make the point that you're making right now mm-hmm. or echo the same point. When we go back to Paul's Monterey Inn, the only thing that makes Popeye Doyle's alarm system go off is that little hunch, that tuition, that signal that is given off by the table that Sal Boca is sitting at. The table just doesn't jive. Mm-hmm. The characters that are there and the ensemble of characters that are in this club, mm-hmm. it's just out of place. And I think he says that table's wrong. And he comes to that in a really unique way that we see in the film. He's just sort of making the rounds in this place that he's been very, very, very familiar with. Kisses the the hat check girl, good friends with the bartender, probably has you know, table 16 over there. Seat two is reserved for him mm-hmm. on a standing engagement, et cetera. Yeah. And as he's, kind of familiarizing himself with the people in his community, if you will, which is a bar that day, he comes to that table and it's just out of place. And that sets off something's not right here. And this begins the process of how his police work is done. A lot of hunch, a lot of KG steel perseverance, and a lot of mistakes too. Mm -hmm. And then I'm gonna cover up those mistakes with violence exactly. until I beat the truth into you. Mm-hmm. So from this point, Paul's Monterey in to where we see Sal and Angie's newsstand, essentially, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a journey and kind of a, kind of a Hail Mary that kind of pays off big time to, to look at somebody in this bar and it's a bar. So you're going to get an interesting group of people there anyway, that are probably not their best because they're drinking and the lighting's bad and women and cleavage and music and all of that stuff to be okay in that environment and aware enough to pick out this dude doesn't fit speaks to the, I think the police capabilities that Popeye Doyle possesses. Mm-hmm. Now he's going to abuse the hell out of them. Yeah. And he's going to take great liberties that, thank God they didn't have body cams or this movie would have never been made. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? exactly. But nonetheless, it works out and it uncovers a much larger case than he thought he was expecting. They thought they found some street-level corner drug dealers. Yeah. And lo and behold, yeah. they found the front for what's going to be the largest shipment of heroin that's ever been imported into the United States. They found the French connection. What a strange way to come to that. And Sal and Angie are the two, Jesse? And maybe I didn't say this enough at the beginning, but this is based on a true story. From 1960 to 1962, this was an actual sting operation that really happened. And Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso followed a man from a bar and kind of saw where it went, wiretapped him. And it wasn't until they caught French voices on the on the wiretap where like something's coming in here and mm-hmm. we need to amp this up a bit. Remarkable. And the French element in this film, it's Alain Chanier, played by Fernando Ray. And in real life, though, I was telling you this, this was a really well-regarded French uh nobleman he had fought alongside charles de gaulle in world war ii like like a hero in the french in the french world and like i told you like talking about smuggling they're a little more open about it overseas there it's like oh yeah my you know my 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 brother he's he he's owns a fishing and he's a smuggler too like it's not a big deal to them 
So they're the element trying to bring this in and they're using this like television personality as like the front to get all this equipment and cars and everything over there via ship. Like they ask him, why did you come by ship? <laughs> There's no telephones on the ocean. Exactly. So the, you're, you're importing, you know, the drug and then importing the, the, the French as well. So, so in real life and in the film, this is all come to with just the happenstance of recognizing an odd character in your community. That looks shifty. Yeah. That looks shifty. Exactly. Wow. And then the whole time Doyle's being shifty and there was some great deleted scenes in this film that, you know, kind of speak more to his character. There was a couple more sequences of him just hanging out in bars that were reputable by criminals. So Doyle himself was comfortable enough to hang out with these people <laughs> that he maybe put away because he knows what type of information that could lead to on the inside. And then an even better uh, deleted scene where someone's kind of sweeping a floor in a little sandwich shop and he pats him down and finds a switchblade and is like, hey, you can't be carrying this and this and that. And the guy says, I'd rather, um, if I'm not caught with that, it's, it's more dangerous to me than to not have that out mm -hmm. on the street. So he gives it back to him. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a mutual respect there with even that level of criminality. Interesting. This is this is a very well-rounded character. And then we get to this moment that... that you like talking about so frequently is in he, you know, drunken stupor. Everyone's getting out of these bars at like seven in the morning. I don't know how they're doing it. <laughs> the rally time is amazing. <laughs> yeah. But he pulls out, drives out, he's driving home and we'll talk about his home coming up here in a little bit, but he picks up, he just, this a little townie, this bicyclist on the side of the road and we just follow them and he's kind of checking her ass out. And then we cut to the next day and, and Scheider's kind of, uh, Cloudy comes in and is like, what's happening? Hackman's like handcuffed to the bed with some debaucherous sex action, whatever they were doing mm -hmm. last night, and he kind of gives them this. What happened? <sighs> what crazy kid. Locked me up with my own cuffs. Oh. Where's the keys? Oh, yeah. Gosh, I can't even imagine how hungover he would be at this point. He's pulled an all-nighter. Mostly yeah. he fell asleep at the bar. Yeah, and, and for like a 9 a.m. one morning stand. <laughs> and the way he picks her up is just driving home from the bar. Mm -hmm. He likes her can as he sees it on the bike yeah. that she's riding home. Yeah. So he just rolls on her, Yeah. and she agrees, takes her home, and Popeye Doyle's strength of morality mm -hmm. is once again showcased in this film exactly he's a sleazeball man oh big time and 10 years before you're not watching this in the cinemas like you're watching you know gregory peck on, on, on the right. big, yeah, this is atticus finch and the, <laughs> those type of films and then you got this and this is just such a far cry from all of that it's it's really kind of shocking like that we got to this but all the more power because it just feels more real. These films feel like the heartbeat of American society at this point. Wakes up with the cuffs around his ankle. Mm -hmm. Goodness gracious, how did that get there? <laughs> I still think he's drunk from the night before. Oh, yeah, he has to be. And when Scheider comes in, Cloudy comes in and sees the place, about the only thing that's really off-putting to him is that there's a bicycle that's kind of barricading the door closed. He lives in squalor, and it's self-induced squalor, he being Popeye Doyle. And it kind of fits his whole schlubby, gritty, unkept, unclean, harsh 
way that he goes about just daily existence. I guess it worked though, because he found himself a nice young little gal on the bike and they went home and spent some time together, Mm -hmm. cuffs included. And now that that's done, it's back to the case. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, I think this is about the first night ish Mm -hmm. in three or four where he's actually got a little shut eye. (laughs) He's kind of a vampire too, isn't he? Mm -hmm. He just doesn't sleep. Yeah. Just gets tired and just drinks and that'll wake him back up. Yeah. So now they're on on the chase, literally, and so we go to the streets of New York, and it's just so the way it's shot, and it shows he had to tell somebody, or like Hackman's on him for like uh, like a few moments, and then he crosses the street to not arouse suspicion, and then the guy goes this way, and then Scheider comes across to pick it up. Like they're so in sync with each other as partners, and this whole team that they got working with them, but now we're kind of learning the players of this whole operation. And we get that really interesting scene up in the hotel room where the chemist is going to test the grade of the heroin. And they used actual heroin in the sequence. They didn't use like powdered sugar or anything. They, wow. how would you like to be that production assistant? Hey, we need heroin. Go find <laughs> <laughs> But the way they tested, Paul Altman, he's probably got some on set. Yeah, right he now. does. Yeah. Maybe he can loan us some. The way he tests it, and they're they're testing, you know, the temperature and how high it goes up to test the grading of it, and they they're bringing in the best smack that New York's ever oh, seen. Yeah. yeah, it's like grade A. You'll be able to to move this around for years and make quite a profit. Thirty two million on the dime bags alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's eighty eight percent pure junk. Mm-hmm. I love the ranking system that that chemist has too. He's like grade A rocket fuel, or like yeah, he's got like his, as it's going up on the thing. All really interesting. But then let's talk about this this tailing sequence because the way freaking shoots it, it's so well done. So it lasts like that first night, and we get, yeah, Nick, Nicoli and then Chanier and then Sal Boca, and each one's kind of taking a, a turn. But it's the one between Doyle and Chanier through New York and then into the subways that's masterful. I think Chanier knows he has a tail the second he steps out of that hotel. Me too. And he just looks that way, and he's like, I'm going this way. Yep. And again, very documentary, raw looking. Everything's under construction and, and just so, so dirty. I mean, the, the use of color, like, I don't think I could call it like a warm film at all. It's also, and it's not sterile. It's just, it's just gray, gray and cold. Yeah. And I would want to say emotionless because New York's just vibrant with activity, but it just has this look and it, it's, it's interesting. And that's just, that's transferred Greatly on screen. Gray, dirty steampunk. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. When Charnay comes out of that hotel, he doesn't really look at Doyle. He kind of does, but I think Doyle gives himself away because he just happens <clears throat> to be passing by the valet service about the time Charnier walks out. And what does he do? Like, like ducks. <laughs> well, that's not going to draw attention to yourself. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit out of character for him, mm-hmm. but it's not because he's so driven. He's going to do whatever he can to bring this guy yeah. to justice for his own credibility. Yeah. So he ducks behind that entrance into whatever little side shop is next to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And Charnier with his umbrella saunters off into the ne'er-do-wells that populate New York City. Mm-hmm. And that game of cat and mouse is so well done. Oh, it's really good. He does a good job of just weaving it into what's the natural occurrences in New York City. Around corners, behind buses, Mm -hmm. in shops, down corridors, uh, in and off the subway. And that subway bit is just genius. Oh, that's great. Because they get on first and then they get off. 
and then the, the train takes off. So then he goes to the pay phone. Shania goes to get some orange juice. Doyle goes to get a grape drink, grape drink, or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And then now they're just like playing with each other. And he gets out to throw it. He gets out to throw his car, a candy apple. And it's just like, oh, God, like he knows and like what's going to give. And like Shania's, like I said, these Frenchmen, they were smart in this whole operation. Like if they had to tell, they knew how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And when he gets off and then steps back in, <laughs> he gets off and then we get that just bye-bye type of look, which really happened. He'd tell the Frenchman on the subway like this and he totally waved bye to him like that. So Friedkin shoots that incredibly, but one of the Academy Awards that they won for this film was best editing. The way it's cut together really helps streamline that suspense. And it was weird because parts when I was watching it this time, there's sections that feel kind of like a horror film, whether it's the stalking nature or the, the the kind of morose music. I was I was like, man, this is a good appetizer to what he's going to do next. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Mm-hmm. I love that that Shania guy, without giving it away, has been in control of the cat and mouse. The whole time. The entire mm-hmm. time. And he's so cagey and good about it that he doesn't even need Doyle to acknowledge. Or he doesn't even acknowledge Doyle's following or tailing of him mm-hmm. but he's known from the first step and yeah. now you get like oh now i see when that bus drove by the jewelry shop or the flower shop how he was able to get around the corner mm-hmm. he's known where doyle has been since they first left the hotel it's so good and that little wave goodbye mm-hmm. is such a middle finger to doyle yeah. and you know what he's got it coming too yeah you kind of in a way start pulling for charnier a little bit because He's better yeah, at this. Better at the job. He he really is. And they're both effectively doing the same thing, and that's through surreptitious or clandestine means trying to accomplish a task. I'm yeah. going to deal this drugs. I'm going to hide it in X, which we're going to get to, and I don't want to spoil that yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to follow you or tell you, and I don't want you to know it through X. Yeah. They're both doing the same thing, mm-hmm. trying to be sneaky. Yeah. It's just the Frenchman is a lot better at it. Definitely. And then we... So it's all kind of coming apart, and we get this kind of great kind of exchange between him and the real Popeye Doyle in real life. Yeah. It's all this work that they put into this case. Now they're just, they're like ground zero. They got to go do something else now. Got to follow orders. So then this leads to Charnier in an exchange with Nicolay, who's the like assassin element of this kind of French unit. And he says, the one that told me on the subway, he's the problem. Like I'll handle that. So then we get to like the pinnacle of sequences for this film. And it's this kind of this, this chase sequence. It's, it's two chases really as Popeye. His apartment building and Friedkin, they picked a specific apartment that was very prison-like. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I made a comment to you, well, the, the hallways are just so narrow to fill space there. And I guess that's the problem with New York is that there's it's a set amount of space, so you got to cram it and build up. Well, it looks like the Green Mile. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Linoleum floor, green tiles up and down, doors, which essentially are cells. Exactly. It looks like he lives in a penitentiary. 
and seems to be kind of comfortable there. But yeah, okay, keep going. No, yeah. So then, yeah, we have uh, Nikoli up on the top, and he he tries to shoot him, and he ends up shooting a mother who's just walking her baby. Well, you brought up Kent State. Yeah. Clearly, this is influenced and inspired in some regard by Kent State. Well, just think think of that that just aspect shooting a mother who just walking her baby killed her because you miss Doyle. Yeah. And that's that's film in 1971. Exactly. And we're we're okay with that, which is just it, it's just reflecting like just the the chaos of, of of the times. And this film captures it really well. And the score of that until it gets out of that sequence and into the the rail car is the cries of the child that are still <clears throat> left in the carriage. Mm-hmm. So after the woman's been gunned down, Doyle seeks refuge behind this tree, mm-hmm. which I guess is gonna work because there's nothing else. Mm-hmm. And two people rush to the aid of the woman who's been shot. And he's just like, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's been shot. Like, Mm -hmm. and they're right. He doesn't even care about them or the kid. He's just so hell bent Mm -hmm. on catching these bad guys Mm -hmm. that everybody be damned that gets in his way. Yeah. So it's a full on chase at this point. I think I told you like kudos to Hackman for the cardio that he put in running through the streets Heavy drinking, all that eating. I wouldn't want to run through freezing cold New York like this. My lungs would be on fire. Oh, yeah. And he's going up steps like three at a time up the subway to get him. And it's not until he gets into the car that things really kind of get, you know, moving here. Now, the producer of this film, Philip D'Antoni, also produced another film with a great car chase sequence, Bullet, with Steve McQueen. Yeah. And one of the things they did in that car chase, while brilliant and masterfully uh, choreographed, was they cleared a lot of San Francisco streets for that. Um, they choreographed it properly. I guess French Connection and Freakin decided to go, we're not going to get the proper permits to film on these streets because it's kind of hell to film in New York and clear blocks of city streets. So we're like, we're just going to film with the people there anyway. He wanted people, the living, breathing New York in the way. And boy, do you see that in the sequence him kind of meandering through and in and out of traffic and i told you a couple times like they got hit by cars and like they weren't that wasn't like scripted like that just happened accidentally and they had to go pay off these people that they ran into congratulations you wrecked cars in our movie here's five thousand dollars yeah sweet yeah it looks great it sure does now you're gonna this is totally fascinating to me to um with how they edited this after after the fact but as a placer to kind of gauge rhythm. And when I used to make films back in college, I would always put songs or something in placement because I have to edit to sound, whether it's a song or a composition, I got to know where to put things and music certainly helps that. Mm -hmm. Well, they took that same approach here and the song that they used um, to capture that was Santana's Black Magic Woman. And you can kind of feel that in the rhythm of this song kind of weaving in and out. Oh, yeah. So that helps just decide the pacing of the cuts and the rhythm, which is, that's brilliant. That's that's such a great move there. Basically an eight count that crescendo, crescendos on eight, but that's hard to score mm-hmm. in video without the actual audio backing it, which that doesn't make the movie. That's just there to help them pace it. That's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because there's no music in this sequence. Instead, the music we get, and this is going to be the lesson of William Friedkin through this entire cast, is his use of sound. (laughs) 
So if we're not going to have like a real score in this sequence, how are we going to gauge tension and keep rising it up? We're going to bombard them again. Like you said, everything's so harsh in this. Even the sound is harsh and kind of bombarding that constant honking of the horn. Mm -hmm. So this chase leads to its apex. A Nick lead has no way out. He's already killed like two people on the train and it crashes into another train. And then Doyle's all kind of beat to shit at this point too. And this is an interesting moment too. And, and they thought that, filming this, that this could be a, a deal breaker. But when this unarmed assassin, Nick Lee, kind of comes down and sees him, but then kind of turns up and Doyle just shoots him. He shoots this unarmed man in the back and the people, the the consult Egan and all of them said, you can't shoot this man in the back. Like they're going to like turn against this character and far from it. When they screened this film, it was just like thunderous applause. Like right. here's this kind of bastard man himself taking down an equally bastard man and it's it's just in this regard. Okay, so that goes to the time period. Mm -hmm. The you can't shoot the man in the back is a very common trope from the hero in the Western. Like only bad guys shoot <clears throat> other people in the back mm -hmm. because they can't see it coming. So at least if you're going to do somebody in, mm -hmm. have the moral fortitude to stare them down as you do it. That's the golden age of Hollywood personified. Mm -hmm. Even gangsters. Yeah. In Edward G. Robinson, Jimmy Cagney yeah, yeah. kind of places, were very, very careful with the gunning down of bad guys. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, go to some like it hot. I know that's a light, more lighthearted gangster film. Yeah, yeah. But they gun him down at least facing them. Mm -hmm. It was just a no no. Only the worst of the worst gunned down the bad guy mm -hmm. in the back. Yeah. You hear that, Ransom Stoddard and mm -hmm. Liberty Valance? Yeah. Anyway, we'll have to do that movie someday too, huh? Yep. But it's not, it's not Popeye Doyle because those don't that that hero doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. The world is far too stark yep. and evil. Well said. To look him in the face, man to man, mano and mano, my eyes, your eyeballs. Here we go, bang bang. May the quickest draw win. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's gone because the quickest draw is going to happen because he's got five guys behind you with guns drawn, ready to gun you like this. Yeah, and they were so they were so confident about it. They put it on the poster, like it's the image on right. the poster. And, Almost the way he gets shot and the way that the mm -hmm. sniper, it's almost Christ-like in the way that he's yeah. extended, like, crucified. Mm -hmm. And for the crowd to cheer yeah, speaks to the honesty. Which shows what they wanted. This period really, really reveled in. Exactly. Enough with everybody that's a hero. Romanticizing the, the hero. Yeah, mm -hmm. every hero can't be named John Connor, mm -hmm. JC. Yep. Sometimes they're named freaking Popeye Doyle. Yeah. And sometimes they shoot the bad guy in the back because that's the only way to get the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And it's such a refreshing take. Exactly. I love that sequence too. Uh, it's so well done. Because what I also really like about it is after the 15 wrecks that Popeye Doyle has been <laughs> in in that car chase, which by the way is my favorite car chase. Oh, it's... We talked about that last week, mm -hmm. right? Um, You see the sum total of it and he kind of collapses against the- Slumps against the rail. The rail mm -hmm. of the steps before he guns him down because he can't hold himself up anymore. Yeah. Other than, I guess, the hatred and the chemical reaction to get that guy. Yeah. Uh, fight or flight literally personified. Once that wears off, mm -hmm. then he's reduced back to this guy who's just been fueled by liquor, women on bicycles, loose morals, and stark reality. Mm -hmm. And now that the bad guy's done, he kind of collapses. It's just kind of like lets his guard down a little bit sure. and we realize 
man, he's really pushing the limits too. Mm-hmm. And he's back. They're back on the case. Back on the case. And so it's this tale now of this Lincoln that he's, they're convinced it's dirty because it's being driven by Sal Boca and he comes and parks it in this disgusting neighborhood. God, filthy. <laughs> so gross. And they get the sting on this thing and, you know, they arrest the people involved that were going to kind of, they say they're going to jack it, but they, they kind of know what was in there. And it ends up in the pound but not before they totally rip this thing apart. Like literally any upholstery, cigarette thing, uh, the roof, the just every side panel is just ripped to shreds. The underneath, looking for any trace of of drugs or the heroin or the smack, and nothing. It comes up with nothing. Well, shame on Irv because he didn't <laughs> pre and post weigh the car, and after they've shredded this car, essentially they find out that there's 120 pounds that have somehow increase the weight of the car from when it was built to when it was weighed in in Irv's shop. Mm-hmm. And Irv, it's so funny. Look, Popeye, I took everything off this car but the rocker panels and Popeye. Come on, Irv, what the hell's that? Yeah. And so let's get to the rocker panels, which are those steel panels mm-hmm. that go between the door and the frame of the car when you open it. Mm-hmm. Like the mud panel yeah. as you get into the car, essentially, yeah. Yeah. on the passenger and driver's side doors Mm -hmm. off they come jackhammer to pull up whatever chassis piece there is yeah and lo and behold yeah there's the heroin there's the heroin Mm -hmm. and they had to have found a new car for uh for Devereaux because there's no way they're putting that thing back together but they put the drugs back in it, like where, where they where they had it, and give him the car, and off they go to their their uh, their big meeting of the exchange of drugs and money, and testing it one more time. And everything looks like a big success, and all the players that we've seen throughout the film are there, and they're all applauding, and this is going to be a great score from them. And this is such a great moment when they come back over this bridge, and like one way to get to this other just disgusting, decrepit, like abandoned, like hospital, maybe Blair Witch Project. Yeah, oh yeah, very Blair Witch, Blair Witchy looking. We get this whole kind of armada of the New York Police Department with Popeye there, and it just he, then it's his turn to give the middle finger, and he just does a little the same bye bye, yeah, bye bye, and now it's a full on chase now. Again, the whole film's been a chase, and we get this final kind of little confrontation bit in this abandoned abandoned area. And it's all just, like you said it really good, like even though it's kind of like haunted house looking, like it, it fits the aesthetic that they've been going for the entire film. Decrepit, cobwebs, trash, asbestos problem most likely, just totally decrepit. And we get this final confrontation uh, between Chanier, maybe, and and Doyle and it all just kind of reaches its head and he puts five bullets in someone that comes around the corner thinking it's him and it's I can't remember the guy's name but it's like the guy that's been like on the tails with them the whole time as this movie's based on a true story I thought a lot about the location where they're going to do <laughs> the exchange for the heroin and the money so once the car has been taken out of impound by Devereaux and heroin cabal incorporated they put the heroin back under the rocker panels and essentially they've created a trap yeah for charnier and his his goons so they go to this like you said nondescript abandoned hotel or hospital or whatever this place is and is run down and as a big of a shantate as this place is rusted rotting 
it fits because everything in New York is kind of rusted and rotting. This is only slightly more rusted and rotting, mm. so it's a perfect hideout. It's mm. like hiding in plain sight. So there's that one sequence where they remove the panel from the wall, and that's the storage place for the money mm -hmm. that has now been put in the rocker panels once the heroin was removed to then be shipped back across, yeah. the, right? So we're, we're looking at the rocker panel area of the car mm -hmm. as the transport system for drugs and money. Yep. Once the money has been delivered, it's put in the rocker panels and the heroin goes in behind the panel of the wall in this decrepit shack, whatever yeah. the hell this place is. <laughs> yeah. No one's going to look in there mm -hmm. because number one, a place like that in modern day society would really stick out as God, that place is a just trash pit. It's mm -hmm. run down. What a hell hole. Yeah. But not in 1971, New York. That's just the place around the corner. That's the hiding place. So why would you even bother going in there? And that one's even a little bit more worse than Sal and Annie's over there on fifth and Broadway. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it's just part of the environment and it's such a natural, smart hiding place. Mm -hmm. And it's woven so well into the story because the whole environment of New York city where these bad guys are engaging in commerce mm -hmm. looks exactly like that. Yep. I love that they set that up so subtly. Yeah and played it out to an effective manner. Yeah. I love it. It's mm -hmm. so it's so well done. Yeah. It, it, that could look like a blister mm -hmm. on a baby's clear perfect rear end. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that's how that's how off-putting that could be if not done well. Mm -hmm. And it fits in so perfectly because and the whole movie's been like that. Mm -hmm. Why would you go look at that panel in that house? The whole freaking city looks at like, we're going to go look at every panel in every city. They all look like that. Yeah, they'll get away with it. It's so good. Mm -hmm. So after he kind of puts the bullets in the, their partner here and he's like, he's like, you shot him. And like, he's like, he's like that son of a bitch is here. I know he is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him. And then we get to something. And I, I like film endings like this that kind of just, you know, that they end and, a kind of a little open-ended where I can kind of figure things out for myself when he kind of just goes down this hallway and we hear a gunshot and then we cut to black and then we get some stills. And I love the use of stills in, in film. I, I think it's an underappreciated. I told you this this week, I recently watched Night of the Living Dead and the still photography at the end of that film is they put Ben on the oh, yeah. fire. Pyre. Oh my gosh, that gives me the chills. In effigy. So here and we're kind of getting like a couple, like we're getting in, after the fact and all these players, Weinstock and Angie and all these players, the guy that owned that, they're all getting off with nothing. Yeah. Like charges dropped because of lack of evidence, charged with conspiracy, had to Devereaux's serve. the only one guy, right? Yeah, four he, years. Four years, yeah, that's nothing either. Mm -hmm. Chanier was never seen again, believed to be living in France, which actually happened. The, that real Chanier got away, went to France and died in France. Of old age. Of old age, yeah. Happy. Happy, yeah. With a young girlfriend. <laughs> Probably, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And then the final parting card is Detectives Doyle and Russo were transferred out of, out of narcotics and, and reassigned when. And then the music, too. The music is so haunting and chilling to me. It's like, I'm going to play some of it here coming up, but it's just like. Here's a film where the bad guy, the good guys, if nay, we call them that, don't even win the day necessarily. The guys get away unprosecuted and they have to go pick up shops somewhere else. It's a really bold ending. I guess they've stopped the drug trade for that shipment of heroin, maybe. Mm -hmm. 
maybe that's some version of winning. Mm -hmm. But for Popeye Doyle, I don't think it was ever about stopping the drugs. It was about catching this big, big mm -hmm. fish. Yeah, and he gets away. And I don't even really know if he ever truly had him on the hook. Sure. Um, I think the fish kind of swam by and batted the hook with his tail, and he started reeling frantically yeah. mm, just to sort of test him. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, he doesn't win the day. Yeah. And then to make matters even worse, as a final great big middle finger to our buddy cop team, mm -hmm. they're split up and reassigned in this after the story's over they're moved off narcotics yeah split up and i don't know maybe go right desk jockey or beat cop i don't know what but exactly they lose this position that they had mm -hmm. charnier wins man he totally does so now before we get to some questions that i want to ask you just some just a few little anecdotes so like i said this was a 1.8 million dollar budgeted film 75 million dollar gross worldwide so we've got to think back to 1971 that's a huge haul for a film like this too you know what i mean and if you ever want to see the story continue there is a french connection too where doyle goes to france to track down chanier and there's this whole middle section where they get him all hopped up on heroin and it's just not a sequel that i need you know what i mean like i like this ending to this one and i didn't know this but there was a tv show in the late or a tv movie in the late 80s called popeye doyle with Al Bundy, Ed O'Neill as Popeye Doyle. And no it, kidding. Yeah, it was just a one-off. And I don't even know if you can find that anywhere. How about that? I heard it's not good. I wonder if they showcased it on WGN. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, possibly. Popeye's Chicken is allegedly named after Popeye Doyle in this film, hmm. which is which is interesting. Yeah. And was nominated for, I think, eight or nine Academy Awards. Won five for Best Picture, Director, Actor Gene Hackman, Adapted screenplay based on the book by Robin Moore and then editing. Almost one of the big five. Yeah. Not quite, but close. Yeah, not quite. Yeah. One away. Mm -hmm. So pretty remarkable for this film from this kind of really, I want to say Friedkin at this point was untested and it may he say to, to handle something like this, but handled it aptly. And then I think the biggest prize that any film can kind of, kind of win is just the, the legacy of longevity and that's being added to the national film registry um, category. Not yeah. every film gets to be in that party. This film is a part of that too. So pretty remarkable. So Matt, before we get to our ratings, I want to ask you, what was your favorite tasting note, favorite scene of this film? Probably the subway chasing, all of that extended mm -hmm. from the meeting outside the yeah. hotel to the wave by bye on the train. Mm -hmm. Um, that's probably really easy to choose that, but I do think that's the big moment in the movie when you're seeing the closest thing to a showdown between the two characters. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's going to be it for me. I just, I just think it's handled so well and there's so much tension and interest in just everyday occurrence. Like even the bit on the phone, which he uses as yeah. camouflage, yeah. but actually serves a purpose because he's calling the, the hotel where the federal officer who's also been assigned the case is has has missed the mark. Mm -hmm. You guys are way off. What the hell's going on over there? Like it just and then the bit about, yeah, I'm not working that place. I don't care if you are your bartender sick. Same to you, buddy. Exactly. He's so Popeye. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. He's a bartender. Yeah. Um, mine's the tearing the cart up, uh, tearing a part of the car. Uh, it's just when are they going to find it? How are they going to find it? And then the way they find it is just really well done in my eyes all right so now it's time for the oh my god 
I need a shot moment of the film. What is that for you? I think it might be that opening bit when they shake down that African-American guy Mm -hmm. and just beat the shit. Ah, I'm trying Mm -hmm. really hard not to swear. It's It's hard this week because the movie's put me in that state too. Um, I think that's probably it. Mm -hmm. It's just unrelenting. Yeah. And they kind of tried a good cop, bad cop it, you can see. Mm-hmm. But Popeye is such a bastard. There is no good cop, bad cop in this. It's literally like good cop, bad cop. Not not for manipulative purposes, for the bad guy to squeal. Yeah. To keep Popeye from beating this dude within an inch of his life. And you kind of feel with every punch and kick, there's a little bit more behind that. I don't know if you've not- if you noticed when we were watching, but uh, when um, he starts that whole picking your feet in Poughkeepsie bit. Oh, and- yeah. Uh, Scheider's character kind of turns like towards the camera. He's a little out of focus, but he he's laughing because he kind of knows that this is the shtick that he does to get info out of the peeps. Right. So yeah, really good. Mine's the the chick on the bicycle that says everything without saying anything about 1971 era film that you need to know about your protagonist. It, it's it's so well done. Well, if you go back to Hayes Code stuff, mm-hmm. just even the hint you couldn't even glare right <laughs> you couldn't even look at you couldn't even really do that yeah, don't look at a woman like that so, yeah we are we're so conquering far. big time achievements and covering big ground in film at this point mm-hmm. and thank heavens for that because it's just going to open up so much more conflict and story for us as, as and what film it, lovers what it opens up to and we're going to talk about this especially in week three with sorcerer is it kind of creates this whole kind of new Hollywood filmmaker movement with Coppola, Scorsese, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, John Milius, Steven Spielberg, and all these, William Friedkin, all these filmmakers that are are tours, but they're testing the limits of what's acceptable in cinema. And I love it. I, I love the testing the tolerance of the moviegoer. Yeah, we can add Nichols and Bogdanovich oh, to that Oh, you definitely certain, can. Yeah. But the Howard Hawks era, it's, the... So it's, gone. Well, they're dead. Mm-hmm. John Ford's gone. They're 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 gone. Or what's Hitch- left is not usable because they're too old. Hitchcock's so we, gone. Right. Mm-hmm. We have to find the new next wave. And boy, what a next wave we have come to to that, that and those men. Incredible. And people on set. Good for them. Who's the master distiller on this film? I, I don't know. It's between. It's either Friedkin or Hackman. Um, Let me go first, and you can just kind of jump on. Take the one you don't. No, just jump on my coattails. Okay. So we're going to have plenty of time to talk about Friedkin, this entire cast. There's no arguing his mastery on this. Hackman, this is one of the all-time great film performances that the medium has ever seen. It's just he commands the scene through his great, um, you know, aerobics and ability to run. But then the way he kind of just takes charge and just giving us something to chew at that we had not seen anything quite like that before. I don't really prescribe a lot of significance to Academy Awards because mostly it's a party of us about us by the voting of us. Mm -hmm. But to win one is significant. Mm -hmm. To win two, you're starting to get in a very rarefied air. I mean, when I can tell you that there are people like Cary Grant that never won a single one, Mm -hmm. and Hackman has two, Mm -hmm then I think you have to start realizing that for as much as we kid, but not really in a comedic way, sort of tease and poke fun at Claude Rains. Yeah. Gene Hackman is sort of like that too. Mm-hmm. Unrefined, um, underappreciated. Yeah. 
and I would argue for the importance of this role to sort of further the legacy of Gene Hackman, mm -hmm. obviously Academy Award winning, blah, blah, blah. He's a really good basketball coach too. Yeah. No, I'm not trying to be funny, but like Hoosiers is the best sports movie that's ever been made. Mm -hmm. I said that, Ryan Nation. That's my number one sports film. Yeah. And I will take arms against anybody who wants to challenge. Mm -hmm. And oh. he's a really believable basketball coach. Like, give me a bad Gene Hackman role. Good luck. Yeah, between you, whether it's Lex Luthor and Superman right. or Mississippi Burning or even the Royal Tenenbaums. Right. As Papa Tenenbaum. Like, he's he's really great in a lot. The Firm. You ever seen the firm yes. with Tom? Yeah, he's great in that too. That's he, what I'm saying. I mean, I'm sure there's one or two out there. Oh, sure, yeah, maybe. Yeah, and then to win it again, mm -hmm. and Unforgiven in a much later stage. I know that's supporting, but nonetheless, who cares? But he's good in that part too. He's just good. Yeah. So yeah, I, okay. It, since we're going to have other outs for Gene for William Friedkin, we'll save him for later. <laughs> sure. Okay, this is Gene. I'll give both to Gene Hackman. Yeah, master distiller. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and rate the French Connection. We have Rock Cut, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf ratings. So, Matt, what are you going to give the French Connection? God, am I going four weeks in a row? How can you not? Rarefied air. Yeah, we have to pick something, and it's not going to happen next week either. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, man, this is mm -hmm. the finest of the fine. Yeah. Genre defining, important in the legacy of film. Yeah. Rewatchable, entertaining, smart. There's moments that are funny. It leaves it an impression. The characters are memorable. Do I need to keep going? No. It's top shelf, top shelf. It's, it's not in my top 20 of all sure. time. Yeah. But it's in my top 50 of all time. This is a really, really excellent film. Mm -hmm. It. Yeah, I really like films. It's it's so it's it's almost heist like, but with drugs instead of like money or jewels or jewels. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I like when like you kind of see the cat and mouse play between bad guys and antagonists, and then we're just treated to a protagonist that's kind of despicable, but we're kind of pulling for him at the same time. But then the bad guys kind of win the day, and then we got this great car chase sequence, and then the direction and the music, like all the elements are like firing on all cylinders. And when a film can do that, you get nothing but a top shelf rating at that point. So yeah. So it's double top shelf. Double top shelf. Yeah. So that that's gonna be that. And it's a perfect so he, 1971, they, you know, they do the awards like in 72 Academy Awards. You win pitcher, director, actor. Your film's the talk of the town. You're the hottest name in Hollywood right now. And your second serving that you're going to serve up is going to prove to be maybe the most important horror film that's ever been made. This might be the most important movie that we've discussed on, on Rice Smile Films, but we'll set that up here coming up in a bit. Is that from Amityville Horror or is that from the French Connection? <laughs> French Connection. There's no way that's the score I'm for trying a to cop film. I'm trying to figure out what that instrument is that does that. Boom. That doesn't give you the chills. I don't know what it does. Like that, that pedal steel, maybe uh, synthesized pedal I steel? Did, like a bassoon, maybe? Like, I don't know. Interesting. Creepy. Yeah. Being that New York is such a backdrop for this film in an interesting way. <laughs> This was the first time that you ever got to see the World uh, Trade Centers on the backdrop of the New York skyline. They were still under construction. That's cool. So what's your other favorite film set in New York City? A lot of films set in New York City. <laughs> Big time. Nothing by Woody Allen. Yeah. 
okay, because I don't like Woody Allen, mm-hmm. but I do like Michael Corleone and Vito Corleone in The Godfather. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with that. Um, again, this is sort of from the annals of obvious, but sometimes it's just so obvious because it should be obvious. You know what's great about that, though, is it's not, that's 1972. Oh, wait, in what period is that? Yeah, exactly. Same. But they're portraying like 1945 in New York, and the way they set dress, how for, the mid-40s New York is supposed to look is incredible. Yeah, mm-hmm. The Godfather. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought about a, a lot of different films from, you know, the original King Kong to When Harry Met Sally, but I had to come on one because I had to pick something fun. Just because of how it traverses the terrain of New York so well, I got to go The Warriors. Warriors, can you dig it? And just kind of using, again, the subway system uh, as a means to get to Coney Island in another chase film. And whether it's the Baseball Furies or any of these gangs that are so well populated here at the Central Park meeting and the Killing of Cyrus. It's a fun movie. And it's just, it's it's comic book-like to an extent because of just the, the cast of characters. But I love a good chase. And that whole film is a chase. Do you want that redone oh, with a real budget and I, a real I want to do it. I do too. But that would be incredible. Didn't they launch a video game from that movie not did. too long yeah, ago? Yeah, Rockstar Games, the company that does uh, Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption, made it like early 2000s on the PS2. And? I've never played it, but okay. it's a, it's kind of like playing the, the movie, I guess. And that film is we'll do we'll do a cask or maybe a, a one shot uh, at some point just films dying to be remade because i think the wild bunch is dying and they're doing that one but the warriors is right in that camp and a, a, a remake i wouldn't mind seeing you know what i mean right yeah so excellent this has been a good episode talking about william friedkin and the french connection next week as i set up just earlier we're covering from 1973 the exorcist oy, oy, oy. this is a big one have we covered a more pr- important or bigger film in Rise history? I mean, Star Wars is pretty big. Well, okay, so there's importance like you're talking about, and then there's personal importance too. Yeah. And I know for me, this movie this movie might be mm-hmm. the most important film I ever saw. At When I saw it, how mm-hmm. I came to it, and yeah. I've told you stories about irresponsible babysitters <laughs> and my friends and all that. But this was my first kind of exposure into mm-hmm. a harder type film. Yeah. And um, much like 120 minutes on MTV, which exposed me to bands mm-hmm. like The Smiths and R.E.M. and Susie and the Banshees and some alternative music that was so weird at the beginning that I couldn't help but keep wanting to listen. Yeah. This made me want to keep seeing. Mm-hmm. So in the horror annals, I would argue maybe Halloween <clears throat> and... To maybe a slightly greater extent, this film, I don't know if you can say this is, there's, there's a more important film than The Exorcist. But to yeah. me personally, it also does. So I'm obviously letting the cat out of the bag, and I sort of told the audience like how I'm going to rate this <laughs> next week. But I still want to watch it. Yeah, I'm reading the book right now. We'll both have some interesting takes on the book because we've both read it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I don't know. We're going to need to go to Mass on Sunday. <laughs> Even though we can't go to Mass, we'll have to have Mass. We'll have and to now have Black our own, our own private confessional. Oh, Black Mass. Oh, my God. I know. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. So the, the version we're going to watch, right, Nation, if you kind of want to piggyback on what we're going to watch, the version you've never seen before, the version released in 2000, the re-release, because I think the changes that Friedkin added to that, including, like, 
some like the blood coming out of her mouth and the spider walk and some just changing the sequences is adds more to the film Mm -hmm. than sometimes director's cuts don't do. So we're going to do that and it's going to, I can't wait to talk about the sound. And I, to me, the creepiest scenes in the film aren't even the stuff with the devil. It's that stuff at the hospital, man. Like all those just procedures that Reagan McNeil has to go through. Mm -hmm. The probing and the prodding. Oh my. And the, the use of sound, this, I'm just saying this right now. I think this is the best film to ever use sound in the way it does Mm. of all time. Wow. So I can't wait to talk about that and the performances. It's going to be a lot of fun. But cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to go hide some some shit in the in the side panels of my car. And it's not heroin, but um, I'm maybe going to store comic books in there because I don't want those to be taken. While you're doing that, I'm going to go find the Catholic boy that's been repressed inside of me and give him a sturdy workout because he needs to be in full effect next week to protect us from this movie. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. The French Connection is property of 20th Century Fox and Philip D'Antoni Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Moldrich. You shot Moldrich. The son of a bitch is here. I saw it. I'm going to get him.